I said earlier, we are in our eighth week of the series that I am calling This Is Us. The reason I'm calling it This Is Us because it is an examination of us as a church. Who are we? What do we believe? Where did we come from? And my hope in doing that is by finding those answers, it will be a guide that it will lead us as we move into the future and begin to ask the question, where are we going? Where are we going in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years or 100 years? I believe that who we are now, where we've come from, and what we believe will be the guardrails that lead us into the future. Now understand, as a pastor, it would be real easy for you to hear my vision for the church. It'd be real easy for me to get up here and do a sermon or a sermon series about where I believe we are and where I believe we need to go and where I believe God is calling us and even how we are going to get there. But then it would be me convincing you of something that I believe. I would much rather for you to be able to wrestle with these ideas and allow the Holy Spirit to give us, you and me, His vision for our future as we examine these things. Because I'm praying that as God gives us and reveals to us where we are going, He will also reveal the roles and the responsibilities that each one of us will have to help us get there, to allow us to become a a Spirit-led dream and vision that each one of us invest in. And when that happens, when, when it moves beyond just the pastor's vision or the leadership's vision, and it becomes the church's vision, when it is spirit-led, the church is al- allowed, the church makes available the opportunity to do more than we ever could on our own. More than we could ever accomplish if it's just my vision. Because so many times, each one of us, we walk by sight. We walk by what we understand. And when we hear things that we believe that God is leading us to, the first response that we want to give is we can't do that. That's impossible. I I don't see how we could ever do that. If I told you that I believe God is leading us to a place where we are going to have to add more services, where this room will be full of people seeking and and declaring the glory of God, you say, well, I don't see how that's going to happen. How are we going to get there? Well, when God instills that in your heart, you invest in it. It becomes a part of you. Now, last week we looked at who we are, and by looking at the very first church in the book of Acts. We examined that first church that came out of Pentecost. And I gave you a couple of things there in Acts 2 that examined their mission as the first church and their motivation. We talked about their mission. What was their mission? To be filled with the Holy Spirit as individual Christians, but then as a church to allow the Holy Spirit the freedom to reign. And that's dangerous because that means that we have to let go of our control and allow the Holy Spirit to control. And that means that we might not know where He's taking us. We also learned that part of their mission, part of who they were, was that everything they did was ground in the Word of God. Everything they did was central to what was found in God's Word. And then we learned about their motivations, why they did what they did. They did it for fellowship, and we said that was more than just eating. It was becoming a place where people could do community. They were bound as one another in community. They were motivated by prayer, that prayer was a part of everything that they did as a church and as individuals. They were motivated by trying to meet the needs of their friends and their church members. They looked out for one another. They became aware of the mental and physical and spiritual needs of each other. And then their goal was evangelism. The Bible says they added to their number daily. They grew daily. They reached people for Christ. And that mission and those motivations 
are to be the guidelines that every church should have at their foundation. Those very same principles that we found in that first church are to be when you strip everything else away and say, why do we do what we do? Why do we do how we do it? Those principles need to be the guiding factor. Filled with the Spirit, guided by the Word of God, motivated by community, prayer, and motivated by meeting the needs of others. And as we do that, evangelism happens. People are drawn in. Now, one of the things that many churches struggle with, and and it's the same with us as individuals, is the idea of self-evaluation. How do you determine if a church is being a success? How do you determine whether or not we are doing what God's called us to do? You know, for so many years, we, we determined success according to size and according to finances. If a church was big or if a church was growing, then it had to be doing what was right. It had to be doing what God wanted it to do. It had to be healthy. If a church was financially solvent, then we said, well, God is blessing them, so they must be right. They must be doing what is right. But you can't base the spiritual health of a church on the amount in their bank account or the number in their pews. Because I've seen both big churches and wealthy churches that were both very unhealthy and not doing what God called them to do. Self-evaluation is tough. Self-evaluation is painful. Self-evaluation, just like for individuals, is a struggle because it's much easier instead of looking at who we are and examining why we do what we do and examining the problems that we may have in the church, it's easier just to ignore them. We do that as individuals, don't we? You get a symptom and you tell yourself it's not a big deal. I can take care of it. You know, you have a problem in your life and you figure, well, it's going to go away on its own. And we act like it's not there. You know, you've got a, a rattle in the car, let's say. And it's been rattling for a while and you choose to tune it out because you don't want to take it to a mechanic to find out what's wrong, right? And other people get in your car and they say, do you hear that rattle? And you say, no, I don't hear anything. Because you've grown so cold to not hearing it that you don't hear it anymore. And we do the same thing as individuals, and we do the same thing as churches. Instead of evaluating the things that we do to see if they are successful, to see if they are meeting the needs of what the goal was, we just ignore it and we just keep going on. We just act like everything's going to be okay. And then all of a sudden, like with your car or like with your health, the church implodes and something rises up. And we say, how did we get here? How did we get to this place where where all of these problems are on the surface? It's because we weren't willing to do the self-evaluation in part of the process. And what happens in a church is over time, so many people are invested in those programs and those ministries and those activities that we need to evaluate that it becomes territorial. It becomes this idea of that's my baby. I poured all of my time into that 20 years ago or 30 years ago or five years ago. And so we don't touch those things because it becomes divisive. And we just keep patching things and making excuses and hoping that everything's going to turn out right. Instead, if you examine churches in the life of a church, it leads to churches falling into a rut. It leads to churches plateauing. It leads to churches losing sight of their original purpose. And it also leads to churches worshiping a past model more than their mission. See, we begin to worship how we do things instead of who has called us to do those things. We begin to make those models, how we did it and why we did it, sacred cows. Now, let's be honest. We are always fine with self-evaluation as long as it means I don't have to change. As long as it means I don't have to be affected. To be a healthy church, there needs to always be an active evaluation and examining of why we do what we do and how we do it. 
And, and not just for the idea of change. We don't examine ourselves just so we can make changes. It needs to be evaluated so we can understand the reasoning behind it. If we don't understand why we do it and how we do it, then we can't honestly evaluate it. And what happens in a church is most of the things that we do in a church fall into one of three categories. We do the ministries and the programs and the activities the way that we do them for one of three reasons. The first reason is we do it because it's a biblical mandate. We do it because the Bible, the early church did it, because the Bible says the church needs to do these things. Or it's something that Jesus encouraged the church to do, so we implement those things in the church. That could be stuff like communion and baptism and building community and building on the Word of God and seeking the Holy Spirit. Those are biblically mandated that the church has got to do it. There are no options on those things. And so when you ask, why does the church do this? Many times we do it because it is biblically mandated as part of the church's mission. Biblically mandated is who we are as a church. But there's another reason we do things. Sometimes we do things out of preference. Some things we don't do it necessarily because it's biblically mandated, but we do it because that's the way we like it. We do it because that's the way we've always done it. It may be things that are biblically mandated that, that don't specifically say how we're supposed to do it. And so we in the church begin to, to develop these principles of this is why we do it, because it's the way I like it. And you could think about things like a worship service or how we disciple people. Those principles are biblically mandated, but it doesn't tell us how. We understand in the early church that they had services, but we don't know how they had services. Sometimes it was a meal. Sometimes it was a significant service. We know it was rounded around the Word of God and rooted in the teaching of the Word of God, but we don't know what else they did. And so we do many of the things that we do in here on Sunday out of preference. That's the way we like it. That's the way it fits for our church. When it comes to discipleship, small group Bible study, helping Christians to grow, we are just told to disciple people, not necessarily how to do it, and many of the ways or the reasons of how we do it is based on what we like. And so we do things in the church either because it's biblically mandated or because it's preference or thirdly, for pragmatism. That just simply means because it works. We do it because it is a tried and true method that works. It's worked in the past. It works in other churches. And so that's why we do it how we do it here. Maybe it's something like a, a program or a ministry or a, a style of service or an activity or an event. And you say, why do we do those things the way we do it? Because it has worked in the past. Because it has always worked. Now, does that mean that doing things because it is our preference or because it's pragmatic is wrong? No. That's always going to be a part of the church. The problem comes when we begin to evaluate who we are as a church and we confuse the reason why we do it. When we take those things that are preference or are pragmatic because we like it, because that's the way we've always done it, or because it works, and make them biblically mandated. When we try to make our preferences and, and our pragmatism something that is biblically mandated, and I've seen it happen over and over in church again regarding everything. I've heard it when it comes to style of worship. People want to prove that their preference is a biblical mandate. We've got to do it this way because that's the way the Bible says. I remember 30 years ago hearing people say you shouldn't have drums in church because the Bible teaches that drums are evil. No, go read the book of Psalms. It says praise Him with, with timbrel and with instruments and with flutes and with harps and with drums. 
It even says praising with dancing, but we don't even like to talk about that in the Baptist church. I've heard people justify the color of the carpet in the church, their preference as a biblical mandate. We need to have red carpet or we need to have neutral carpet because that is the carpet that represents who Jesus is. Wrong. I've heard it justified to how you build buildings. That buildings need to be shaped this way and you've got to have this element and you've got to have that element. Well, guess what? In the New Testament church, they didn't have buildings. So how is that a biblical mandate? All of those things are fine and it's fine to choose to do things because of those reasons as long as we acknowledge it's because of those reasons. We say we do it this way because that's the way we like it. We do it this way because that's what works. Don't try to say we do it this way because that's the way the Bible tells us to. There are things that that's true, but there's a whole lot of things we do that don't fall under that category. As a Christian, this was always something I was fascinated with. I was, I've always been fascinated with the church because I, I like history. And part of our history is discovering why we do the things that we do. Why do we do it the way that we do it? But I never really had to deal with it. I was never confronted with it until I became lead pastor at this church. I've been in ministry 20 years, but I never had to ask the question, why do we do it the way we do it? Why do we do this? And, and more importantly, what category does that fall in? Do we do it because it's a biblical mandate or do we do it just because it's a preference or because it's pragmatic? Now, I understand when you start talking about these kind of things, it's, it's kind of like thinking about how the sausage is made. It's not glamorous. But I want you to walk with me through this process, and I'm explaining all this to get to a very specific point, and I want you, in your mind, to think through it so that when we get there, you can ask the question, because it relates to you. Now, please understand, not everything that's in the Bible is a biblical mandate. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's mandated for all churches to do. It may be something very specific to a certain situation, to a certain circumstance, or to a certain church that's mentioned in the Bible. good example would be women in ministry. Many people use Paul's admonition to Timothy, who was a young pastor in Ephesus, as saying women should remain silent in the church because that's what Paul told Timothy. Well, Paul told that to Timothy because of the issues they were having in the church at Ephesus. See, in Ephesus was the temple of Diana, Artemis, the temple of love. And many of the priestesses, the leaders in that temple, were getting saved. And they were coming to the church. And they were bringing some of their old things. And when they were leaders in that type of temple into the church, Paul said, listen, tell those ladies to be quiet and learn before they start speaking. He wasn't saying that all women in all churches need to be silent, although that might be pragmatic. It's not a biblical mandate. It was very specific to a situation. And I, and I always like how guys love to quote that verse. But then the verse that comes right after it that says women shouldn't wear makeup and they shouldn't have jewelry and they shouldn't do their hair and they need to have their head covered. And men, when they come into the church, need to have their head covered. We say, listen, that's not biblically mandated. We still wear makeup, still wear jewelry, still do our hair. We don't have to put head coverings on. That was talking about a specific situation. But when you talk about women being silent, that is biblically mandated. Another example would be slavery. Paul talks about slavery several times. And many people have used Paul's teaching on slavery to try to justify the act of slavery. Paul wasn't justifying slavery. He was speaking to a very specific situation in that early church. And slavery in that day was more of a bondservant, what we would call an indentured servant. He wasn't justifying slavery. He was talking about specific situations where people are having to work their way out of being indentured. And how do you respond to that? 
So just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean the church has to do it. And one of those examples, just to help you think it through, might be something that we call in the Protestant church or something that we grew up calling the invitation or the altar call that happens at the end of most worship services when the pastor stands down front and you put on some soft music, maybe just as I am, and and you ask people to publicly respond to what God's doing in their life. Now, most of us grew up with that type of service. You grew up where at the end of the service, the pastor would stand here and we would play more music and, and the pastor would say, you come forward to publicly announce that you've accepted Christ or you come forward to pray or you come forward to join the church and you would have an extended time and Some churches build a large amount of time into that. Some pastors practice how they give an invitation more than they practice how they're going to preach. And in some places, it's the central part of the service. Everything is building towards that. Now, is that preference, pragmatic, or a biblical mandate? Do we do that in a service because the Bible says that's what we're supposed to do? Or do we do it because that's what works? Or do we do it because that's the way we've always done it and that's the way we like it? Think about it. You might say, well, Jesus had people respond to him when he asked them questions, but did he have them publicly get up and come forward? Peter, at the message of Pentecost, he preaches and it says 3,000 people were joined in the church, became believers, but did they play soft music and have them walk down an aisle and, and stand in the front and publicly pray for them? Biblical mandate, preference, or pragmatic? What most of us would be surprised to discover is that the altar call, or the invitation as we call it, has only been involved in the church since the mid-1800s, about 150 years. It came about after the Second Great Awakening. It came about when the modern revival movement began to grow. And before that time, before the 1840s and 1850s, God moved in incredible ways in churches with people like Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, pastors that would preach the Word of God, the whole First Great Awakening and Jonathan Edwards. God moved and they never had a formal altar call, a formal invitation. It wasn't until the Second Great Awakening, a Presbyterian minister by the name of Charles Finney developed what he called an anxious bench, an anxious seat. And what they would do in the services that Charles Finney was preaching is they would move out a pew or seats in the very front of the church and they would have those that are not believers or those that were wrestling with whether or not to ask Jesus in their heart come and sit there so that everybody else could pray for them. And many times in Charles Finney's services, he would preach right to them. And I guess that probably would make you anxious. And out of that, over time, as we moved into the 20th century and the modern revival movement, it developed into what we call an invitation or an altar call. Especially when you begin to have the big stadium events like Billy Graham and other evangelists. They developed and they made it a workable solution to having people respond by the altar call. And churches just added it to their own. Now, does that make it wrong? No. Does it make it wrong that we do it because it's pragmatic, it works, or because it's a personal preference? No. Most of us in here probably made our public profession of faith. We told other people that we asked Jesus into our heart through an altar call. But we just need to understand that it's preference. We just need to understand it doesn't mean that it's a biblical mandate. We do it because it's pragmatic. And you may have noticed that I, in this service, don't always give what you call a traditional altar call. I don't stand at the front. Now, does that mean I think it's wrong? No, because many Sundays I will. I think it needs to be determined by the Holy Spirit. 
See, there are some Sundays I believe that what I'm preaching on may not call for a public response. And so me standing trying to get people to respond public is not being obedient to the Holy Spirit. Now, do I believe that God can speak in every service? Yes, I believe I can get up here and stutter and mumble and God can speak and people can be saved. But I don't necessarily think that that means that people need to come down and publicly proclaim it. There is a time for that and there is a place for that. Not because it's a biblical mandate, but because it's a preference. I would rather be obedient to the Holy Spirit than try to convince or manipulate people to make decisions. And we are beginning to see some of the bad results that came out of those types of invitations and those types of altar calls. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It means we just need to evaluate how we do it. And another example that I want to give you, and the reason I walked you all the way through this process is because I wanted you to think about an issue that I struggled with when I became a pastor. An issue that I struggled with that we do in the church that I really didn't understand why we did it. And I really didn't understand if it was a biblical mandate. Were we doing it because God said to do it or were we doing it because that's just the way we'd always done it? And that is the idea of church membership. Is being a member of a local church body biblical? And I wrestled with that. Because you see, when I became pastor of First Baptist Church of Blowing Rock almost 11 years ago, And I was going to begin to stand up here and say that you need to join us, that you need to publicly somehow commit yourself to this body of believers. I wanted to make sure I was asking people to do something that was biblical. I wanted to know why we did that. Why do we do that? Is it important? And one of the reasons I struggled with it is because as a student pastor for 20 years, I began to notice that many of the younger generations that were coming up were not joiners. They didn't join things the way my generation or some of your generations did. And I'm speaking in generalities. There are exceptions to the rule. But my generation was joiners. We joined everything. If there was something to join, we joined it. I can remember as a kid, I I joined TV show clubs. I joined cartoon clubs. I joined cereal clubs. If it was on the back of a cereal box, send this and join the club. Man, I was mailing that thing in. I even joined a potato chip club. They had Fritos, and they had a character called Frito Bandito, and he represented Fritos, and you could join the Frito Bandito club. And I had a shirt. I was a joiner. When I got to high school, I joined everything. French club, yes, I'll be there. Chess club, yes, I'll be. I don't know how to play. I can't speak it, but I'll join. I had more membership affiliations and joining statuses than I had the ability to demonstrate them. But I began to notice that the generations that were coming up were much more skeptical. They were much more hesitant to join anything. And that crossed over into the church. Some of you grew up in a generation where you just joined the church. You didn't even think about why you did it or what you were doing. It it was just a part of your DNA. I'm going to go to a new town, and we are going to move. And most of you said we're going to look for a Baptist church, because I grew up in a Baptist church. And after you're there a couple of times, you think, I like this, and the preacher's okay, and he didn't put me to sleep, and the music's good, and the air's on. It's comfortable in there, and the kids got something to do. We're going to join the church. That wasn't enough for the next generation. That's not enough for those who have never grown up in church. So when I became a senior pastor, I began to dive in. Is joining the church biblical? Is being a member of a local church biblical? Now, unfortunately, there is no Bible verse that says, Thou must join the church. It's not there. 
You can do what most Christians do when you find a topic you don't know. Go to your concordance and look in the back. Church membership. It's not there. Now, we understand that when we ask Jesus into our heart, we automatically, we don't have to join. We become a part of the church, the universal church, the body of Christ around the world that every follower of Christ is a member of. But of the 113 times in the New Testament that the Bible uses the word church or is interpreted church, most of the time it's the Greek word ekklesia, ekklesia, that means those who are called out. Only four of those 113 times is it talking about that universal church. 109 times in the New Testament, it is talking about what we would call a local body of believers. We can define that as the visible manifestation of God's people gathered in local assemblies for worship, witness, fellowship, and service. 109 times, local church. Every one of Paul and Peter and John's letters in the New Testament were written to a local church or to a group of local churches in an area or to a local leader, a local pastor. Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Romans, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. 1 Peter, 2 Peter, even the book of Revelation, written to a local church. So it's not a question that the Bible is very clear that God empowers and expects there to be a local church. But what about membership? What about joining the local church? Well, I had to do some more digging, and there are a few verses I encountered that brought some questions to my mind. Verses like Hebrews 13, 17, it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority, for they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them. He's talking about spiritual leaders. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Paul writes to Timothy at the church at Ephesus, 1 Timothy 5, 17. It says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church, and the word elders there is where we would interpret it pastors or shepherds, For those elders who direct the affairs of the church are well worthy of a double honor, especially those whose work is teaching and preaching. It says, church, obey your leaders, your spiritual leaders. Submit yourself to them. Then the passage that I've given you in the order of service, 1 Peter, listen to what he says, 1 Peter 5, to the elders among you, he's talking about pastors, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, as Peter, a witness of Christ's suffering and one who also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those who entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. Now, did you hear some terms? See, those three passages bring up some interesting questions. If church membership is not a biblical mandate, then which leaders should you as a Christian submit to? Who should you obey? Any pastor? Every pastor? Anyone who claims to be a spiritual authority? Are you called? Will you give an account someday before God that you obeyed those spiritual leaders? Because you see, if there's not an indication that joining the church is important, then you will be accountable to every pastor. That TV preacher that you see flipping through, if membership does not designate who you're accountable to, then you're accountable to what he says, even if it's a bunch of hogwash. And even more important, who will I, as a pastor, who am I accountable for? If one day I'll stand before God, it says, and give an account for those who are under my care, for those in my flock, how do I know who is in my flock? Is it everybody that's ever come into this church? 
We have over 300 visitors a year from all over the states and even the world. We have people that are here six months out of the year and then not here six months out of the year. Am I accountable for everybody in Blowing Rock? Am I accountable for everybody in Watauga County? Is it my responsibility to make sure everyone in this area of North Carolina is being spiritually taught the truth and being fed spiritually and being ministered to spiritually? If there's no biblical mandate for church membership, then how do I know who is my flock? In the passage, he's talking to deacons, and he says, those who are deacons, you need to be responsible for those who are under your care. How do deacons know if there's no membership? If there's no delineation between who is in and who is out, how do we give an account? How do you give an account? And then there's the whole concept of church discipline in the Bible. Paul spends a whole lot of time talking to the messed up church at Corinth, the church that had struggles. And listen to what he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are proud of it and remain silent. Shouldn't you rather be filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Shouldn't you put him out of the local church? He says, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. For when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan, which means just wash your hands of it, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and the spirit saved on the day of the Lord. For your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you might have a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread with sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. He's saying, I'm not talking about people that struggle. I'm talking about people that thumb their nose at God and continue to sin. But I am now writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but a sexual immoral, greedy, an idolater, or a slander, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. And he says this in verse 12, it's the key. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? For God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from within you. Now here's an honest question. If you don't have a way to determine who is in, how can you ever kick somebody out? If we don't know, if we don't put limits on what it means to be a part of a local church, then how will we ever hold each other accountable? Who are we supposed to hold accountable? Who are we supposed to be responsible for? The Bible and the New Testament are pretty clear that there is an in and there is an out. And there is a differentiation between those who are a recognized part of the local church and those who are not. So I would suggest to you that the Bible is pretty clear that being a member of a local church is not a preference. It's not pragmatic. We don't do it just because that's the way we do it. We do it because the Bible is clear that there needs to be a differentiation. In Acts chapter 6, they had the appointment of the very first deacons, and, and they are appointed to specific groups of people. When Paul later on in Timothy writes about the early church and he's talking about the widows and ministering to the widows in the church at Ephesus, he differentiates between what widows you minister to and what widows you don't. There are those who are in the church that you are responsible for and those who are not. 
At the end of the book of Romans, in Romans 16, Paul gives this long list of greetings, and he greets people according to the church that they are a part of. So there is an awareness that you are called to be a part of something much bigger than just yourself. Simply put, and this is what conclusion I drew, how can we, both as pastors and Christians, be obedient to these passages if we're not connected to a local covenant community of faith? If we are not a part of a local church. When you begin to look at these texts and others like it, it becomes very clear that God's plan for every Christ follower is that we be connected, committed, plugged in to a local faith community. Just as a side note, it's almost impossible for you to grow spiritually without being connected to a local church. Because if you are not committed, if you are not collected, if you are not a member of a local church... When God begins to work in your life, when God begins to convict you, when the Holy Spirit begins to to speak to you and you grow uncomfortable and your sins are revealed, the only way you truly can deal with that, the only way you can truly grow from that is in a cultivated environment of other believers that support and love you. And you don't have that if you just come and go. And if you're not committed, what's going to happen is when God begins to convict you, when God begins to tell you something in the service, or you get uncomfortable, you have a tendency just to leave, go somewhere else. And the problem is we leave and go somewhere else because we're uncomfortable with what God is doing and telling us in a service, and that is at the very moment when we are most susceptible to grow spiritually. We run from it. Now please hear me. Churches are not all the same. Churches are not the same in style or in size or in belief or in practice. But not one church is perfect. But I firmly believe the Scripture teaches that God calls people to specific churches for specific reasons. It's not a matter of what you like. It's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of what that church needs and what you need. Because when God calls you to a specific place for a specific purpose, it is for both you and the church. Moving and joining a local church is not something you and I need to take lightly or need to take for granted. And joining a church should never be based on personalities or programs or preference. Don't join the church because you like the preacher. Don't join the church because you, you like the music. Don't join the church because they have certain programs there or because you like the style that they have because those things change. Why do we join a church? Because the Holy Spirit is speaking to our heart that when we are there, that is the place that we are called to be. It is Holy Spirit-led. I believe you're going to know it when you're at the place that God calls you. I believe you can't escape it. And I also believe you know when it's time to move on. See, one of the greatest hindrances of the churches is people come in and out and they leave one church to go to another church, not because God led them to it, but because they got mad or they got angry or they didn't like something that was happening. Well, I promise you, you know what happens in that circumstance? Those people are never happy wherever they go, never fulfilled. Why? Because they're not part of that body. They're part of the body they left, and they weren't led to leave. And until they get reconnected to that body, they will be miserable. Joining the church, being a part of the church is a very big deal, not based on circumstance or situation, but based on the Holy Spirit. And I also believe that each one of us is called to formally commit ourselves to the other body of believers that are in that community. However the church determines that you do that. Different churches have it different ways. But I believe that when God says this is your place, this is your home, that you are to formally make that known. 
publicly make that known. Officially do it. Not as a matter of preference or pragmatism, but because it is biblically mandated. And you understand this is something God's calling you to do. Now I know a lot of you here that have been here a while and you've never joined. Maybe you've wrestled with the same things I wrestled with. Maybe you just don't come from a group of joiners. Or maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you really don't understand what it means to join the church. But for whatever reason, you've come and you've gotten involved and and you've come to be a part of it. I want you to pray this week. I want you to pray about what God might be calling you to do. And next week, I'm going to give a formal invitation. I'm going to give those that I feel like this week God's going to say, these are your people, you need to commit to it, an opportunity to do that. You say, well, Pastor, wouldn't it be real easy to do it today when you're preaching on joining the church? I mean, man, some of us are convicted, Pastor. I've been coming. I need to join the church. I need to be a part. The Bible says to do this. I need to do this. It would be perfect. But I want you to do it because I preached on it. I don't want you to do it because you're convicted right now. I want you to go home and wrestle with it. And I want you to be able to come back and say, the Spirit is calling me to be obedient. And we know that we know that we know that God is calling us to this place. I believe in the local church. I believe in being accountable to one another and learning from one another and growing together. I hope you'll pray about it this week. And for those of us who are members, been members a long time, here, somewhere else, let me ask you the question. What does your membership mean to you? Have you been taking it for granted? Have you been taking it lightly? What are the responsibilities that come with being a member, being counted as a part of a church? Well, next week I'm going to talk about that. Let's pray.